The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. So, Father, we have, we have already drank deeply from your word by the songs that we've sung. And we, we ask now that you would, you would come and you would work. Um, I ask you for grace for me right now that I, would, that I would do your will. Your will is that your word would be put forth truthfully and clearly and um, helpfully for all of us. So I pray for grace for that. But, um, the, the transmission of information does nothing to save a soul. The transmission of information by itself does not give life. It does not radically change the human heart. You do that. So please come, as you already have in your music, and you're praying, please come and fill me, fill us, and cause the, the transmission of information to, to amount to, to nothing less than, than transformation. Would you let us leave here today more like you, Lord Jesus? You who are ascended in the heavens, completely at rest, completely secure at the Father's side. Would you let us leave here today a little bit more like you, walking with you, trusting you, resting in all that you are for us, all that you say for us, to us, all that you do for us. Give us grace to leave here today confident in you. So, do a miracle here, we pray. We pray this confidently because you, you are the God of miracles. Thank you for loving us. Love us now through your spirit, we pray. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. The first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11. In past weeks, we have looked at the beginning of Genesis. God creates everything and places Adam and Eve in the garden, but a rival kingdom intrudes, a usurper, Satan. He incites doubt in Adam and Eve and they rebel against God. God responds with both curses and grace, the, the curse of death, but the promise of an offspring with Eve who would bring life. Eve believes the promise. Perhaps it's Cain, her firstborn. But Cain is proud and self-sufficient. Of course, you probably know the story. He kills his brother Abel. God again responds with curse and with grace. He curses Cain, taking away the thing that he valued most, but he also gives grace, a, a mark on Cain to protect him. But the march of sin and the expansion of the rival kingdom continues in the line of Cain. And again, God responds with grace, another son to Eve named Seth, whose line will lead to one righteous man, Noah. And God responds with curse, the flood. But, after the flood, even righteous Noah falls, getting falling down, passed out drunk, Genesis 9. Genesis is, Genesis doesn't pull any punches. <clears throat> His son Ham acts even worse, and the story ends with curse to Ham, but blessing as Shem, the line of Shem, leads to Abram or 
Abraham, who we will return to today. So let me read Genesis 11. Genesis 11. We read here, we see this, this, this wave of sin and curse, sin and curse, sin and curse, finally cresting at the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had one language in the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had, <clears throat> they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was a hundred years old, he fathered Apakshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Apakshad five hundred years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpakshad had lived thirty-five years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpakshad lived after he fathered Shelah four hundred and three years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah lived thirty years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg lived 30 years, he fathered Ryu. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ryu 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ryu lived 32 years, he fathered Sarug. And Ryu lived after he fathered Sarug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarug lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah. And the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, um, excuse me, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. The word of the Lord. All the nations known about in Genesis, um, we, re we can read about them in chapter 10, they, they all come from Noah and his sons. By the time of Genesis 11, these, these people groups are spreading out all over the earth. They all speak the same language, but they're beginning to group by people, by clans, and they begin to separate. One group, led by the mighty Nimrod, He's mentioned in chapter 10, verse 8. They settle in the plain of Shinar. Chapter 11, verse 3. They've, they've discovered a new technology, a technology of brick making. Think of what we could do, they say. We could build a city. We could build as high as we want. You can hear some pride in that. 
We want to be like God, strong, secure, powerful, glorious even, without God. Let us make a name for ourselves, verse 4. Let's build a city for protection, a tower to the heavens. You can also hear the, the insecurity that underlies this pride. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They fear the other people groups. They fear being slaughtered, killed, or scattered. So they want to make themselves great and powerful in order to resolve their very real insecurity. There's nothing new about nationalism. It's been around since Noah, at least since Noah. Every country wants to protect itself. But the writer wants us to note one other detail found in verse 3. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. In other words, the materials they had were pathetic for what they were setting out to do. Their plan to build to the heavens with their crumbly bricks and brittle mortar would be woefully insufficient. Their technology was completely unable to resolve their insecurity. Their trust in their own hands, their own bricks, was delusional, absurd. We're meant to hear that in this story, absurdity. And we read another absurd note in verse 5. How tall did they make their tower? So tall that God had to look down from the heavens and come down to see it. That's how tall this tower was that reached to the heavens. Absurd. Yet God is not laughing. There is absurdity here, but there is seriousness to God's response. Verse 6. He observes that they are united in language and purpose. And God expresses what could have been the cry of westward expansion in America or something that many politicians might say today. This is only the beginning. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible for them, except it's not a compliment. So in response, he says, come. Well, excuse me, in response to what they say, which is come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower to the heavens. God responds in kind with verse 7, let us go down and they're confused their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. God frustrates them by dividing them, by creating different languages. They can't communicate with each other and so the very thing they fear is what comes to pass. Genesis says, they feared being dispersed over the face of the earth, and that's exactly what happens. And the city comes to be known as Babel, which means confusion. It also went by a more proud name, Babylon, meaning the gate of God. Ancient Babylon really was a great city. It was the cultural and economic center of Mesopotamia, and it had a big tower, a ziggurat, a square-shaped tower with a temple on top. They bragged that the base of the tower was in the underworld and its top reached the heavens. So, the writer of Genesis is calling a shot here. You say that you're the gate of God, but really you're confused. You're deluded. Why? Why, why is Babylon singled out here at the end of this cycle of sin and cursing? Well, because as we keep reading our Bibles, Babylon becomes, you, you might say, the, the, the capital of the world. All the immorality of the world, all of the, all of the world's empty philosophies, all of the bloodshed and violence of the world begins right here. Trying to be secure and powerful and glorious and and, and happy and at peace like God without God. It, it all starts right there at, at that plan, at that impulse. Everything else that, that makes up the world grows out of, of that right there. So you might say Babylon is the, the, the capital of the world. By the time we get to Revelation 
the world has only two kingdoms. The, the kingdom of God coming down out of heaven and the great harlot, Babylon, who lures the peoples of the world away from God to their destruction. Now, by the time Genesis is written, the world has, has really devolved into a, a polytheistic, multiple God world. Confusion about who God really is was, was everywhere. Thus, if you're, I haven't read these myself, I've read historians who have, scholars who have, there are several ancient stories about creation and about the flood. In one of them, the gods create people for food. Uh, in another one, the flood was caused by too much procreation. I'm not sure how that works, but the, the ancient Babylonians, however, had a very high view of people. They believed their philosophy was, Babylonian philosophy was that people would just keep getting better and better and better. All we need to know is how to make better bricks. That's our only problem. So, the book you are reading right now, this, Genesis is so familiar to all of us, but you need to understand that the book that you are reading right now was, was nothing less than, than turning the world upside down to an ancient reader. That there is, there is one God, and that one God created everything, and He did not create everything, including people, for food or for capricious reasons or for his own reasons except for his own glory. But he displays that glory in an intense love and care for his creation, especially human beings. Why? Because they are made in his image. This was, this was revolutionary. And this God is sovereign over everything and everyone. Why did the flood happen? Not because of procreation, because people are having too many babies, but because God determined it, because He is holy, holy, holy. And so He sovereignly judged the world. And then the flood stopped because God said it's going to stop. That's why it stopped. <clears throat> so the writer of, of Genesis is, is telling familiar stories to us and to the ancient world, but it is a radically different God, just like today just like today. A God who sovereignly frustrates our plans to unite apart from Him, dividing us that He might gather us to give us His kingdom. That's a, say that's the big point today. I'll say it again. God sovereignly frustrates our uniting apart from Him, dividing us, that He might gather us again to give us His kingdom. So, what is, what is God up to here? Have you ever read, that, read this and thought, is God insecure? Is God, like, threatened by the Babylonians? Is God... Does he see them as rivals? Or is God against human progress? Does he not like iPhones? What is, what is, what is God up to here? No, he's not against iPhones or human progress, not at all. No, he's actually acting in love here. And this is, this is the first of, of three, three points today. First point is this. God frustrates our resolving our insecurity outside of Him out of fatherly love. God frustrates our resolving our insecurity outside of Him out of fatherly love. The problem here is not technology. iPhones and the space program and virtual reality and all the things we can do with medicine today, that, that's not the problem. It's what the human heart does with these advances. That's the problem. We are continually tempted to take the work of our hands and to make that our refuge against the very real insecurity that we feel in life. And it is a continual temptation because we, we are made 
in the image of God, which means God wasn't exaggerating when he said, nothing's impossible for them. They can do whatever they want. Why? Because we bear God's image. Sin has not completely erased it. That's, that, that's why there is seemingly no end, no limit to what the human mind can learn and create. There's, there is seemingly no limit to the, to the problems that we can solve because we possess His, his image. We get that from our Father. We have just finished a century of unrivaled scientific advancement in a number of fields, too many to count. Vast health and wealth has been created. It has been, really, if you think about it, the last century has been breathtaking. And it has been a century of breathtaking, unrivaled bloodshed, war, violence, holocaust, unrivaled in history. The way we have mechanized killing each other. Our advancements in knowledge and science and education have proven to be false refuges from the insecurity that every human being possesses. They're false refuges for for getting what we really want, the, the peace, the security, the power, even glory, satisfaction, life. Our technological advances, as advanced as they are, are just brittle bricks and bitumen. And, and yet we keep at it. We, we, we keep at it. We're, we're all prone, nations and individuals, we're all prone to keep at it, to, to delusionally keep trying to resolve our, our insecurity by making better bricks. And the problem, the problem with being delusional is that you don't know you're delusional. You, you need outside help to, to, to come in and, and show you and, and release you from that. And the whole world is that way. It, it, that's out there, and it's still in here. It's, it's still here in me. And not that the insecurity that we feel is not real. As I said, it is very real. Our world today is intensely insecure, isn't it? Ours is a world on edge. No? I mean, terrorism only seems to get more brutal and random and mindless. And in our country, our, the races, we, we don't trust each other. We wonder where this economy and this election is going to take us. It's, it's, I'm not so much saying that we feel insecure. We, we are insecure. And especially us Americans, we, we cling to this faith that people are basically good like the Babylonians did. It's delusional because the news and our own experience keeps telling us otherwise, keeps unsettling us. The world is devolving. And underlying all of this chaos is a usurper who advances his, his rival kingdom through chaos and pain. Why? Why chaos and pain? Because he's, he's doing it to create doubt, to, to show the cosmos that, that people only trust this God, just like he did with Job. People, you, only trust this God because of what he does for you, not because of who he is. So, then we doubt him. We doubt his promises and we, we take refuge in the things of Babylon. We seek the peace of God without God. So, God, however, does not respond with, there, 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 it's all right. I'll, I'll give you what you want. It's all right. No, no, no. God is a perfect parent, a perfect father. He does not respond out of insecurity. He responds wisely out of love. He knows that there is something more valuable than uniting a dividing country, a divided country, or a world. He knows that there's something more important than peace. There's something even more important than physical security or eradicating war. 
He knows where our false refuges lead us, to war and death and finally destruction away from the presence of Him. At the end of time, there will only be one kingdom. That's, that's not in question. It will be His. He Himself is our only source of life. He Himself is our only way to resolve our very real insecurity. Therefore, He, he actively, actively, sovereignly frustrates our plans to delusionally take refuge in Babylon in the world. He does this lovingly so that, as, as Paul told the Athenians, we would seek Him and find Him. He brings futility that we would look up and find Him. He purposely puts limits and boundaries on our lives out of love. There is no limit to what humans can do. But we will, if left to our own devices, drive off a cliff. So He does this and this and this and this to bring frustration that we would look up and find Him. It's the fiery jealousy of a father breaking the delusions of his children that would kill them. He's, he's out for what you're looking for. Do you know that? Except God knows how to give it to you. God knows where it's actually found. In Him. So He frustrates you to give you Himself. This gives us a better understanding of why the world is what it is today. Yes, there is the human heart, and there is the world, there is Babylon, and we need to give the devil a vote in the whole matter too. But over all of it is a sovereign God frustrating us and dividing us. Why is our country divided? I think it's first and foremost because there is a sovereign God dividing us that we would turn to Him. That's why. That we would turn to Him, that He would gather us back to Himself. He disperses so that He can gather. He is acting in love. Fathers need to act sometimes in painful love, but it's nevertheless love. So, wherever you and I take refuge apart from Him, there He will be making sure the bricks crumble. Bringing division. Bringing dispersing. He will see to it that we feel the, the impotence of our, of our false refuges to, to, to bring us true peace, to truly satisfy us. And if He does not do this, one day all of our fears like Babylon will come back upon us. We will live eternity apart from Him, eternally without peace, without health or security, alone, dispersed away from the presence of God forever. So, whatever we do in our insecurity and our frustration, whatever we do, we must respond by turning from our false refuges and go to God. <laughs> go to God. So what does this look like? This leads us to the second point and to several passages from Scripture. The, the introduction of Babel in Genesis 11 pulls on a thread that runs through the whole Bible. Second point is this. Resolve your insecurity in Christ by His Spirit united with others who do the same. Say that again. Resolve your insecurity in Christ by His Spirit, united with others who do the same. Again, when I say insecurity, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking to people here who might feel insecure or who might appear to be insecure. I mean all of us. We are objectively, all of us, insecure. Medicine can extend life wonderfully, but it cannot resolve the threat of death. Our iPhones can distract us in the, the odd moments when we're waiting in line and that, that, that fidgetiness rises up within us. But it can't, it can't fill and quiet our souls. 
Some of us resolve our insecurity by pretending it doesn't exist, the power of positive thinking. But as we've seen, Genesis is not a positive thinking book. Some of us resolve our insecurity in technology, and sometimes we combine that with nationalism. If we can, if we can harness enough power and simply impose our will, we can make a name for ourselves. We can be safe and secure. We can, dare I say it, be great again. I'm not talking about here, though, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to poke Donald Trump in the eye. I'm not talking about a specific presidential candidate here. Every election is a choice, right, between who is least bad. I'm talking about what is reverberating in your heart when you hear a politician speak. Is, is, is that politician, is he or she becoming your real way of resolving your very real insecurity about our, the trajectory of our country and our culture? Are they replacing God? Some of us resolve our insecurity by pleasure, immorality, and self-medication. Again, I, I, I'm not for or against prescription drugs to deal with the, the, the struggle of life. But perhaps some of them may be very helpful during certain seasons. But they, they don't resolve our, our inherent insecurity. So we string together prescription medication with, with work and vacations and social events and sex and workouts and shopping, whatever we can do so that we don't have to slow down long enough and actually face the threats, the, the, the insecurity that is actually there and actually resolve it. And, and they remain. They're, they're still there. So how, how do we know what, how do I know what my false refuges are? Well, let me tell you something that's been all through Scripture and has been very helpful to me, and that is to, to listen especially to my anxieties and my arguments. Listen to your anxieties. The, the, there's plenty of anxiety that's just, it, it should just be there. It's just part of being human. I'm not talking about that anxiety. If you're in a dark alley and someone jumps out with a knife, you should feel anxiety, you know. And I don't mean that. I mean, that controlling anxiety that just turns on and on and on. Look underneath that. Or look, listen to your own arguments. Listen to your own anger, especially towards other people. Underneath both of these, you may find a, a, a form of greed, interestingly. A, a, a greed that, that wants something so bad that I don't even care. I, I'm not going to trust God to get it. I'm going to get it myself. In anger, you're in my way. Or anxiety, ugh, what if I don't get it? Underneath, especially anxiety and anger, you'll find your, your God replacements. You'll find a little bit of Babylon. <clears throat> so, what do we do with that? Well, we turn from them as we find them. We turn away from them and we turn to God. And as we turn to God and we look into His Word, and we keep reading His Word from Genesis 11, we find that He has been creating the path all along for our return. He's been ahead of us, waiting for us all through history. Like the previous chapters, Genesis 11 ends with curse and with mercy. We are introduced to Abram or He's, as he's known later, Abraham. And again, you probably know the story. God makes a unilateral covenant with Abraham. God promises that his, his offspring, Eve, Abraham, would live forever. Live forever in peace. And crucially, Abraham believed God. He believed God's promise, even though it was a long time coming. And then from Abraham came the nation of Israel, in the desert, God provided with them. He gave them manna from heaven. And they were secure, small, not powerful, but secure as long as they trusted in Him. Um, but in their fears, they turned away from God and sought to resolve their insecurity their own way. And so God did to them, His own nation, what He did with the Babylonians. He dispersed them over the face of the earth. 
But in the middle of that dispersion, we come to the prophecy that was read from earlier, the prophecy of Zephaniah. Turn there. Turn there with me. It's the, the fourth to the last book of the Old Testament. There's you. Even if you're clicking there, you might need to know that. Fourth to the last book of the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 3. Zephaniah chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. God has been talking about judging the nations, bringing wrath. And He says in verse 8, Therefore wait for Me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey, for My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them My indignation, all My burning anger, For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Why? Why is he doing that? Well, he's he's clearing away evil for for a remnant. Verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. One one language, united around the Lord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For them, then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones. For you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. They shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Secure at peace. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. How will He do this? The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will resolve our insecurity for us. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown, renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at the time when I gather you together. You people who wanted to make a name for yourself, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, when I restore to you all that I've scattered in order to gather you. Glorious prophecy. Glorious prophecy. God is keeping His promise to Abraham. He promises to undo what He did at Babel. And we will no longer be divided, we who are left. We will serve God with one accord. This remnant, this little group, will be characterized by one thing. They seek refuge in the name of the Lord. They take refuge in the name of the Lord and all that God does and says for them. This, this true Israel will graze and lie down and be at peace, at rest, secure. How does God do, how does God do this? 
He Himself will come in the midst of His people, verses 15 and 17. He will not require that that people build a tower to heaven to reach Him. He will come down. He will come close down to us. And His people will never again fear evil, verse 15, because when the Mighty One comes, when He is in our midst, He will forgive us of our sin. He will forgive us of our wandering, of our defecting from God and He will rejoice over us. We will see Him, and He will quiet us. He will resolve our insecurity with His love. He will resolve the evil within us. He will resolve the evil in the world all around us, and He will resolve evil itself, destroying the usurper forever. And He will give those of us who trust Him, who call out to His name, everything we were, we were looking for. Everything. Even glory. You will be renowned and praised among all the people in the earth. He will share His glory with His people. He will make a name for His people. And of course we know that God began to fulfill this promise in Jesus. Jesus, John 1, the God-man who is God with us. God who came close. He died for us, taking the judgments that you and I deserved for all of our wandering upon Himself. Taking it upon Himself, and then the, the wrath of God was, was poured out upon Him, the wrath that was due to us, and the love that was due to Him was poured out on us on the cross. More than that, He was raised from the dead, clearing away our greatest enemy, death. If you have never trusted in Christ, your deep, very real insecurity remains unresolved. And it will never be resolved until you trust Him. Until you trust Him for the, your greatest need. And if you do trust Him, you will find Him to be the only true refuge from God's wrath to come, but also today right now. You will see Him on His cross and His love will quiet you. Quiet you and free you. Will free you. I say, I say that it will give you security and refuge today because Jesus has ascended to heaven. He's not only raised from the dead, but He has ascended. And when He ascended, He did not just Leave it to ourselves. Leave it to us to, to figure it out. He kept unwinding the curse of Babel. He did this by pouring out His Spirit on the first disciples at Pentecost in Acts 2. And as the Spirit fell on them, you remember, they all spoke different languages. And people from many different nations heard them and understood. It was through His Spirit that Jesus unwinds the curse of Babel. This happens again in Acts 10. This time, Peter is not talking to Jews, but to Gentiles, to the nations. And again, the Spirit comes down as Peter is preaching the gospel. The Spirit comes down, and Cornelius and his family, they all begin to speak different languages. God came down and gave His Spirit to the Gentiles, to the nations, to us. All of us who have trusted in Christ have been baptized in the Spirit. We've all been made alive, united to Christ by the Spirit. If you have trusted in Christ, that is just true about you. Do you know that? That is just true about you. You have in the Spirit a, a vital connection to the power of the ascended Jesus who keeps us and protects us until the very end. The Spirit is the power of Christ that, that keeps resolving our insecurity every single day until it is finally resolved when He returns, when we see Him face to face. So, how do we, how do we enter into this, this work of the Spirit? How do we daily resolve our insecurity? What does that actually, what does that actually look like, Jed? Well, it begins by being honest with God, by being specific with Him, 
by bringing to Him your very specific needs and concerns. But we do it leaning on Jesus. We, we come to God in the power of the name of the Lord. We come to God, we bring our very real needs and concerns to Him on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. Not on the basis of anything we have done. In confidence in Him. But before we go to God, we, we take up the promises of God. We, we, we take words with us as we go. We pick up the promises of God and we, and we bring them before the Lord and we, we speak God's own promises to Him on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. You might call this psalm-making. Psalm-making. The psalms are there to, to teach us to make our own psalms, to, to take the promises of God and, and plant them right in the middle of our very real insecurity and then cry out to God. And when we do that, the Spirit meets us right there in that moment. The very real Spirit meets us and preaches to us the love of God. He affirms to our souls the very strong, real, unshakable, unending, secure love of God for you. And it is by that love that the Spirit quiets our souls and frees us, frees us. Let me, let me show you what this looks like in, in Acts 4. Acts 4, T turn there with me, please. Acts 4, Peter and John have, and, and, and the church really have, have just been threatened by the authorities to stop preaching Jesus. And we need to see how, how did they resolve this Verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, everybody, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, whom Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So they, they remember together, united, as with one voice. They come together and they unite around the Lord and they remember that He is sovereign. And they remember, oh yeah, this was planned from the beginning. That the sovereign God is doing all of this for our good. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And they remember, oh yeah, Jesus has walked this path before us. He knows exactly what this is like. He has gone before us and resolved the insecurity that we feel right now already for us. And so, verse 29, look with me, they, they leave it with God. Verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats I'm going to leave it with you, Lord. You look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You have already been baptized in the Spirit, believer. But when you bring your concerns and the promises of God with you to God on the basis of what Jesus has done for you, and when you remember all that He has done for you and all that He says for you and all that He has promised and, and all that He is for you, when you do this, the Spirit meets you there and fills you. 
I, I, I've never had the house shake, but I've seen this. I've seen in many ways where my feelings are not necessarily resolved. I may still feel in some way insecure, but I am free to do the will of God while the threats are still there. They haven't moved. They haven't changed, but I've changed. I've been transformed, and it's by the Spirit so, so do you see that the sovereign God is actually using the very threats in our life that make us feel insecure to fill us and transform us and give us freedom? That's how sovereign He is over your life, Christian. That, that's just true. All the Word is asking you to do today, all God is asking you to do today is, is live in that, believe that, lean hard into Him. Lean hard into Him. Lean hard into Him. And when you do, the Spirit will meet you there and He will quiet you with His love. Nothing else in the universe can do that. But the Spirit of Jesus poured out on you in that very moment. He lives, He is ascended, and He lives every moment for you. The proof is that He pours out His Spirit and meets you in that moment. You impoverish yourself if you don't do what I'm saying. Trust Him. Go to God in this way. Well, I said that it moves us. It frees us. It frees us out of ourselves. And this leads us to the third and and very brief point. Having resolved your insecurity in the spirit of Christ, move toward this insecure world with Christ. Having resolved your insecurity in the spirit of Christ, move toward this insecure world with Christ. Like I said, maybe sometimes resolving your objective insecurity in Christ will result in a subjective feeling of, and maybe not, maybe not, but, but sometimes it does. Sometimes, praise God that He does that for us. Sometimes the gospel is therapeutic to us. Very thankful for that. But that's not the point of the gospel. That's not the end. That's not the end for which God gathered us from being dispersed across the face of the earth. He gathered us for Christ. Christ is the point, the purpose, the end of all of history. As Paul in Colossians puts it, God is uniting all things, you and I, in Christ. The purpose is Christ. The purpose of God comforting you and quieting you with His love is Christ. You are not the end of it. Your Lord Jesus is the end of it. He is the purpose. Man, do we get glorious, infinite benefits? You bet. But He is the purpose. So if, if, if all we think is that the gospel is, is meant to be therapeutic to me, you're not getting it. You're missing the whole thing. Praise God that it is, but the point is Jesus. Everything in your life, every relationship, every, every dollar in your wallet, every, every person you talk to, every store clerk you meet, They're all there, and it's all arranged by a sovereign God to unite all things in Christ. So He quiets us by His love. He causes us to to rest in the blood of Jesus that we would have quiet, confident boldness. Not, Not brashness, but quiet boldness. Boldness in what? Boldness that Jesus reigns and that for whatever He desires, He pours out His Spirit right in front of you as you walk into, I don't know, the pizza place or as you're talking to your your spouse or 
anywhere. He, he pours out His Spirit to, to confirm to you His love that you would qu- have quiet boldness to speak, to, to gossip Jesus. That the name of Jesus would fall out of your mouth wherever you go. Wherever you go, wherever you go, He is commissioning His Spirit to move in us. That's not in question. The question is, are we moving? If you don't possess this this boldness, if you don't feel it, perhaps you need to back up and remind yourself, come to the Lord and be quieted by His love because that, that quieting does not leave us standing still. It moves us. It moves us. And as it moves us, you will become God's hands and feet to continue unwinding the curse of Babel. As we, as we gather together, as we unite together in, in friendships and community groups right here on the prayer meeting on Wednesday night, wherever, and call out to the Lord. We, we are part of God's unwinding the, the curse of Babel a little bit more, and we are a little bit more united around this Jesus. And as you, as you preach Him, as you gossip Him, wherever you go, you become His hands and feet of unwinding that curse. Glorious. Glorious. Thank God that previous generations did not see the gospel as only therapeutic. You and I otherwise would not be here today. Jew or Gentile, we were all scattered, dispersed from the presence of God, but Jesus came close, but He used His hands and feet people, people who had been quieted by His love. Let that be us, Lord. Let that be us. Quiet us with Your love that we would move glory. May He come close to the people you know through you by His Spirit. May He unite us together around one thing, the the one thing that is worth being united over in the whole universe, Jesus. Nothing less. May He do this, and as we unite around Him, may He show us Himself. And when He does, we will see that He is a shepherd of love, leading us by His Spirit to true security, life, and peace. Let's pray. So, Lord, lead on. Lead out. You are a perfect Father, infinite in mercy and grace, worthy to be feared. Worthy to be feared. You you showed no preferences between Babylon and Israel. You dispersed them both. But you are a God who is full of love. You are a good king. We praise you. I ask now that you would commission your spirit as we leave to fill us. Come and fill us as we come to you with our very real insecurities in life. Come, fill us. Affirm to us your love. Quiet us with your love. Grant us repentance from all of the ways that we have We have spurned you and sought refuge in in the world, in Babylon. Grant us repentance from this. Turn us back to you. Show us your love. Give us rest, and then move us. Let us see your glory out there. We ask for nothing less because of what you have done, Lord Jesus. You are a perfect Savior. You have done all for us. You have actually resolved all of our insecurity. Preach that to our souls by your Spirit. We praise you. We ask that you would be praised 
through us in this valley, in this church, and around the world. You are a great king of love. We honor you and we thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.